Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendour, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favourites and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months. You'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In this episode, we'll talk about the lightest of all breads, panettone, and my love affair with the sweetly scented, thickly sliced cake. Carols, the traditional sound of Christmas, will have their time to shine, and I'll give you my recipe for roast cauliflower with carrot hummus, a dinner of quiet comfort, and panettone ice cream, one more way to use this delightful cake over the festive season. 17th of December, panettone, a love story. A dome of pale yellow cake, wrapped in brown and gold waxed paper. Here and there a nib of candied peel, crisp sugar crystals embedded in its walnut-coloured crown. Light, sweet, soft, fluffy even. A fairy cake made by angels. What I remember most clearly is not the taste, but the scent of vanilla. It hung in the air, trapped between the polished marble floors and the high glass ceiling of the galleria. It floated beside the deeper smell of coffee, coming from the cafe where we were seated, blowing our student budgets on doll's house portions of hot chocolate. I knew vanilla as the posh word for taste of nothing, like plain crisps. A vanilla ice meant a swirl of soft, creamy white ice cream that tasted neither of strawberry nor chocolate. I hadn't then met the real vanilla, with its roots in the orchid family, the vanilla that comes in long, slim pods blackened by curing, whose seeds are sticky and are scraped from their jacket like black jam and used to scent custard or cream or folded into chocolate or cake mixture. I hadn't yet made my favourite sweet spice. The tall, paper-clad confection is a member of the family of airily light baked goods dithering between bread and cake that are sliced and eaten in fat wedges or toasted and served with thick cream or soft, sweet cheese. A distant cousin of both the Russian Kulich, served with creamy, almond-scented pashka, or the Sally Lun of Bath, toast and spread with clotted cream. Panettone often shares a plate with mascarpone, and occasionally a glass of zabaione. Panettone is the lightest of all breads, an effect achieved by a long, slow rising process. That first meeting at a cafe in Milan 40 years ago, close to the spires of the Duomo, changed how I felt about it. Until then, bread was for toast, and cakes were about buttercream and glacé icing, whipped cream and creme patissiere. That single wedge of panettone, light as duck down, almost spartan, devoid of cream or icing or chocolate, nudged me in a new direction. I suddenly understood the quiet, almost monastic joy of plain cake. The soft, buttery crumbs of seed cake, Madeira cake and gingerbread, 
a world away from the triple-layered horror of Gatto and anything with a swirl of Italian meringue on top. To this day, I'd rather have a slice of panettone than any of them. Panetto means small loaf. I'm glad to have met my first panettone in Milan, for that is reputedly its home, which is rather like first meeting a fat rascal in Harrogate. Milan was where the money was, a city of merchants and noblemen who could afford bread studded with citron peel and sultanas. The cake appears in The Peasant Wedding, 1567, a painting by Pieter Bruegel the Elder, currently housed in the Museum of Fine Arts in Vienna. The name derives from whichever story you choose to believe. There is, of course, a love story, always tempting. Ugietto degli Italiani, a young man of noble birth, fell in love with Tony, the daughter of a poor baker. Disguising himself, he charmed his way into the job of apprentice, purely to be near her. He invented the fruit-speckled bread and named it after her, Pan di Tony. They married and lived happily ever after. The story will do for an old softy like me, though the colder-hearted may prefer the less romantic version. In the Milanese dialect, Pan di Tono simply means luxury cake. The cakes are boxed to protect their tender crumb from damage. The boxes often come with a ribbon attached, perfect for hanging from the ceiling of an Italian delicatessen, and with it, the subtle suggestion that they are meant as a gift, something to be handed over. I often say my favourite smell is that of snow or wood smoke, but the rush of vanilla and candied fruits as you take a fresh panettone from its crinkly cellophane on a winter's morning comes close. Few Italians would consider making their own panettone. There is little point. Fine, artisan-made versions, scented with real vanilla extract and studded with hand-chopped crystallised peel, are not difficult to find for those who care. Keep watch for the ones possessing a decidedly open texture, generous nuggets of peel and charmingly wobbly contours. They need nothing more than to be torn and eaten mid-morning with coffee. There are also reliably identical, mass-produced cakes flavoured with chemical vanillin piled high in supermarkets and sold at a reasonable price. Eat them as wedges or, less traditionally, in thick, flat slices cut across the cake. Either can be torn and dipped into a small glass of Vinsanto or masala or coffee. As you tire of the simple cakes, cook with them, baking them with a cream and masala custard a sort of Italian bread-and-butter pudding, or sandwich with flavoured mascarpone, cream and berries to make a layer cake. Once the excitement and vanilla-scented fug of a freshly opened box has passed, I slice mine, toast it, and serve the golden discs with a spread made from whipped mascarpone, cream and sweet masala. Carols Carols hold a box full of magic for me each verse full of innocence and wonder. The first few lines of While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night or A Little Town of Bethlehem carry with them every memory of the happiest days of my childhood. Everything that is good about those early Christmases is held within those first few lines. I start playing carols the day I start planning Christmas and there is barely a day of December when the holly and the ivy isn't heard in this house. Carols, at least my most loved ones, are chock-a-block full of memories. The winters I remember as clearly as yesterday. The days I would be allowed to stay home from school to make paper chains. 
the day I made my Christmas cake with my mother, or the entire evening I spent cross-legged on the hall floor, quietly untangling the Christmas lights. They take me back to standing in prayers at school, singing I Saw Three Ships, in a tone as rumbustuous as a sea shanty, and an art lesson where we painstakingly painted the massive classroom windows in the style of stained glass, only to return in the morning to find our work had been cleaned off by the furious cleaners. The origin of the carol, Corolla is the Latin for choral song, probably lies in the wassail, a rather enthusiastic singing by villagers on Twelfth Night to bring good health to the local orchards. Certainly the holly and the ivy has that feel about it. Both evergreens have been deeply associated with winter since pagan times, though the religious explanation is rather different. The white flowers of the holly are a symbol of purity. The red berries represent Christ's blood. The prickles are a reminder of the crown of thorns. Either way, it's a rip-roaring carol best sung with gusto. The Oxford Book of Carols suggests that the melody and lyrics come from a Mrs Clayton of Chipping Camden, supplemented with words from Mrs Wyatt of East Harptree, neither of whom may have had gusto in mind. There is a moment in church when a congregation stands. There is a rustle of hymn books and coats, the thud of an organ stop, and a deep intake of many breaths. It is a sound that never leaves us, no matter how long it has been since our last visit to church. While carols such as Hark the Herald Angels Sing and While Shepherds Watched sound perfectly fine when being sung by any small assembly of people, there are a few that really need a whole choir, at least to my ear. I would argue that Silent Night and Once in Royal David City require the solo perfection of a trained chorister. Beautifully sung, either is capable of bringing me to tears. I've never understood why I, possibly the least religious person you could imagine, finds these two carols so emotional. There is an ever-present innocence and vulnerability to them. A word about Wesley. The 18th child of Samuel and Susanna, Charles Wesley was born in December 1707 and became one of our most prolific hymn writers. Living just down the road, I rather like the idea that Hark the Herald Angels Sing came to him as he walked past St Mary's Church in Islington on Christmas Day, 1738. Whether that is true doesn't really matter to me, only that he left a legacy of some of my favourite hymns. He was, of course, one of that jolly bunch, the Methodists, and the Reverend Mark Lawson-Jones, in his delightful book, The History of Christmas Carols, points out that Wesley preferred slow and reflective renditions of his hymns. Hark the Herald would have been sung to a completely different tune. Not all carols have such clear ancestry. The story behind O Come All Ye Faithful is a mystery complicated enough to pique the interest of any admirer of whodunits, and despite claims that it was written by the King of Portugal, the hymn seems to have been a one-off by Catholic layman John Francis Wade, certainly the earliest copies of the manuscript, written in Latin, bear his signature. My favourite carol, however, has since childhood been Silent Night. Those lines, all is calm, all is bright, are what I want to hear once the lights are twinkling on the Christmas tree. The melody was composed in 1818 by schoolmaster Franz Xavier Gruber in the village of Obendorf by Salzburg. The words were written in 1816 by Joseph Moore, a young priest. The first performance of Still a Nacht was at midnight mass in the village of Arnsdorf, Austria, 
where Gruber was church organist, shortly after he and Moore put the words and music together. This year, I heard Stillenacht sung at the appearance of the Christkind in Nuremberg. I've put in a request for it to be played at my funeral. Just as there was a golden age of chocolate bars, when Mars, Bounty, Milky Way and Topic were invented, some would say of comic books and television advertising, there was also a golden age of carols. I have several versions of the same ones, my favourites being, somewhat inevitably, the various collections by King's College Choir Cambridge. They are the soundtrack to my Christmas cooking. And now a recipe. Panettone ice cream. The custard must not reach boiling point. If you overheat it, it'll curdle, I guarantee. Make certain that the spoon gets right into the corners of the pan. Your most helpful utensil will be a sink of iced water. If there is even the remotest sign of curdling, quickly pour the custard into a clean bowl, sit the bowl in the ice and whisk like you mean it. This serves six. Panettone, 250 grams. Milk, 300 mils. Single cream, 300 mils. A fat vanilla pod. Six egg yolks. Caster sugar, 150 grams. And to finish, a thick slice of panettone toasted. Reduce the panettone to coarse crumbs in a food processor. Then spread them out in a single layer on a baking sheet. Keeping a watchful eye on proceedings, lightly brown the crumbs under a hot oven grill, then set aside. Alternatively, brown them in a frying pan. Pour the milk and cream into a saucepan. Split the vanilla pod, scrape out the seeds and stir them into the milk, then bring almost to the boil. Tip the crumbs into the milk and cream, then remove from the heat, cover and set aside. Beat the egg yolks and caster sugar until light and fluffy. Pour the warm cream and crumbs onto the beaten eggs and sugar. Mix, then pour back into the saucepan. Place over a low to moderate heat, stirring almost continuously with a wooden spoon for 5 to 10 minutes until you get a smooth custard. Once the custard is thick enough to thinly coat the back of the spoon, remove it from the heat. Pour it into a cold basin and leave to cool. Once cool, refrigerate it for a good half hour before pouring it into an ice cream machine and churning until almost frozen. Serve in rough scoops with a little of the toasted panettone crumbled on top. Eighteenth of December, the almond paste. The origins of the ancient paste made from ground almonds and sugar are complex, but it almost certainly came to us from the Middle East. The earliest mentions attribute its invention to the Persians, whom we should also thank for formal gardens, checks, etiquette, polo and postage stamps. The paste was originally eaten not as a sweetmeat, but for its medicinal qualities, a product of the apothecary rather than the confectioner. Razis a Persian doctor, wrote about the curative qualities of what we now know as marzipan as far back as the 9th century AD. In the late 12th century, the paste made its way via Turkey to Europe, where it soon became something of a speciality in both Sicily, where it was known as panis martius or marzipan, 
and Lübeck in northern Germany. It's hard to say who loved it more, the Germans who made it into thick bars, sometimes coated in chocolate, or the Italians, who to this day fashion it into miniature cauliflowers, bunches of grapes and even Brussels sprouts. The results glisten, like an edible fairy story, in the windows of the Petisseria Fratelli Freni, in the Via Chiosetta in Milan. Believe me when I say your eyes will fill with tears at the exquisite creations of almond paste and crystallised fruits under the lights. The word itself, marzipane in Italian, maspan, French, marzipan, German, has many possible origins. Venetians traded precious sweetmeats, crystallised fruits and almond paste in small boxes known as matabans from the Far East. Mataban is still the Arabic word for box or jar. Some believe the word, tweaked to marzipan, was then used to describe the box's precious cargo. Early English references use the word marchpan, literally march bread. Pan, of course, means bread. So the Spanish mathapan and the Portuguese mercipal fit neatly into this theory as well. My bet is on the Latin term martius panis, which means bread of March. Marzipan was traditionally made at Easter. Whatever its etymology, we have it now. Blocks of marzipan covered in chocolate, hidden in sugar-coated stolen, and in a thick layer under the icing of our most festive cake. A mixture of ground almonds, sugar, occasionally eggs, almond extract and honey has always been a luxury. The nuts are the reason we are asked to pay so much for it. I have visited nut traders in the bazaars in Tehran that have every imaginable grade of almonds sold fresh and green, dried in their shells, cracked, skinned, flaked, shredded or ground, and all was sold with the reverence and care we reserve for a ripe mango. I refuse, however, to keep this confection for wrapping the cake. Marzipan will always be precious to me, like Turkish delight, marron glacé and crystallised fruit jellies. Sweet jewels for special occasions. Nineteenth of December. Sour pickles, sweet comfort. It isn't cold enough. We're almost at midwinter, and you would barely know it here in London. The occasional frosty morning, some fog delaying flights at the airports but I find myself envying the north of the country, with its early morning frosts and persistent fog. Scotland has had much snow and a temperature of minus 11 has been recorded in Crondale Moray. Generally, though, the weather has been milder than in recent years. Today, there is some sign of proper cold weather. Frost stays on the hedges all day, and there is word of a storm on its way. Pickling figs in the kitchen... I start looking at colder destinations, places where I will get a whiteout, where I can walk through virgin snow early in the morning and where the scent of wood smoke lingers almost permanently in the air. Each year in February and March I head for Japan. Today I decide to move the dates forward to catch some snow. And now a recipe. Roast cauliflower, carrot hummus. Tonight is the anniversary of Mum's death. I'm not an especially sentimental person, but I rarely forget this day. Who would? 
and often wonder what she would have made of things if she were here today. Tonight, a dinner of quiet comfort, soft, sweet flavours, uplifted by the Middle Eastern notes of mint, green olives and pomegranate. I can only imagine what Mum would have thought of anyone roasting a cauliflower. There is sweetness here, softness too, and then in contrast, the piercing garnet pomegranates and the cool, hot hit of mint. I'm extraordinarily fond of hummus, the smooth, whipped paste of chickpeas and olive oil, and have recently taken to eating it hot. The chickpeas mashed with suitable vegetables such as beetroots and today carrots. I sometimes think I might prefer it hot to cold. If you can bear to, I think it worth skinning the chickpeas for hummus. You get a smoother result, like soft-serve ice cream. It doesn't matter for hummus to be served hot. Or perhaps I should say warm, because that is how I like it best, when it's at its most comforting. I like roasting cauliflower. It sounded ridiculous until I tried it. But you need to remember to baste it with olive oil or butter as it cooks, to stop it drying out. I often serve it raw, dipping the florets into bowls of camel-coloured hummus. So it seems worth trying it hot. The result has a there-there quality, soothing as much as satisfying. Although I probably wouldn't make this a principal vegetable dish at Christmas. It will turn up in at least one of the many festive meals. Serves four as a main dish. A small cauliflower and four tablespoons of olive oil. For the hummus, onions, three, medium, carrots, 300 grams, olive oil, 125 mils plus four tablespoons, half a pomegranate, chickpeas, two times 400 gram tins, eight mint leaves, and 150 grams of stone green olives. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade, that's gas mark six. Peel the onions and roughly chop them. Roughly chop the carrots. Put the onions and carrots into a roasting tin with four tablespoons of olive oil, season and bake for 40 to 50 minutes until the carrots are tender and the onions are golden. Cut the pomegranate in half again and remove the seeds. Once the vegetables have been roasting for 30 minutes, break the cauliflower into florets and place them in a single layer, not too far apart, in a second roasting tin. Pour four tablespoonfuls of olive oil over the florets and roast for 25 minutes, turning them over in the tin once during cooking. Test them for tenderness with a metal skewer. Once the carrots and onions have been cooking for 30 minutes, add the drained chickpeas, keep a spoonful of whole chickpeas to finish, and return to the oven. When the carrots and onions are ready, remove from the heat and blend in a food processor or blender adding 125 mils of olive oil until you have a smooth paste. Tear up the mint leaves and roughly chop the olives. Spoon the carrot hummus onto a serving plate, add the roasted cauliflower, then scatter with the pomegranate seeds, mint, olives and reserved whole chickpeas. The scent of winter. Scent always seems particularly intense to me in winter. The smell of a toasty crumpet on a frosty morning, the sap from a branch snapped in the garden, or of lemon zest grated in the kitchen, all seem especially vivid, heightened at this time of year. 
The cold air seems to illuminate scent. Well, yes and no. The cold actually reduces our ability to detect smells. Our body's capacity to pick up the scent of something reduces on cold days, partly because our odour receptors, all three to four hundred of them, protect themselves against freezing by burying themselves deeper in the nose. They snuggle down and are less receptive. It is like they can't be bothered to get out of bed. There is also less to smell in winter, because odour molecules, denser in the cold, move more slowly in the air in the cool weather. So we actually smell fewer things. This may explain why the smells we do notice, the smoke from burning leaves or of roasting nuts, of a pot of marmalade bubbling on the hob, or the Christmas tree being brought into the house, is more pronounced. Our nose is less confused with other smells. Some things actually smell cold. Snow, obviously, but also peppermint, cucumber, yoghurt, ginger and juniper. They make us feel cold. But there are also smells that don't actually smell of winter, but simply make us think of it. Things we connect with this season alone. A tray of mince pies in the oven, an orange studded with cloves, dumplings swelling in the damp wood of a Chinese steamer, or a shallow dish of potato dauphinoise, calm and creamy baking. There are the winter herbs, of course, bay, rosemary and thyme, the aromatics that weave their magic in stock or meat juices over time, rather than the instant hit of torn basil or coriander, the comforting sugar smells of warm treacle, toffee, butterscotch and licorice, of marmalade and caramel. I don't like the smell of mulled wine. It reminds me of cheap potpourri. But the zest of an orange mingled with the warmth of cloves is certainly a part of any catalogue of winter scents, all the more when it comes in the form of a Seville orange. The lumpy bitter sort needed for a classic duck à l'orange and for marmalade. More pleasing, I think, is that of orange blossom preferably caught on a breeze rather than from a bottle. Too much, it reminds me of Savlon and childhood grazes and cuts. If ever you were in Sorrento in Italy in the winter, head for the nearest lemon tree, often overhanging the path, and its white star-like blossom, there is an olfactory treat in store. One of the loveliest things anyone has ever said to me about my home is that it always smells nice. I hardly ever notice it, to be honest. But thinking about it, they're probably right. In winter, there will almost certainly be wood smoke and beeswax polish. Most of the things designed to make our homes smell festive are uniformly nauseous. They are the very essence of the fake Christmas. Those Yule-scented candles, usually red, that smell of cinnamon and orange, or plug-in room fragrances that smell like cheap air freshener. Hideous. A real Christmas will smell of itself without us trying to evoke it. The tree, of course. The scent of the tree will vary according to the variety. The smell comes from a cocktail of compounds, including alpha-pinene and beta-pinene, in which conifers are particularly abundant, and bornal acetate, known as the heart of pine. Balsam, Douglas and Nordman firs are particularly high in the balsamic and camphor compounds. The reason the tree smells so strongly when you first bring it into the house is because the sap continues to rise in a freshly cut tree. 
As the cut tree ages, the sap stops moving and the smell fades. There is a difference between the smell of winter and winter smells. The latter tend to be induced by us, the smell of a potato baking, of logs burning or hot chocolate. But winter has its own smell. Step outside on a frosty morning and you are smelling the cold. That scent of smoke we detect despite the lack of a fire nearby is due to the fact that smoke doesn't rise as well in cold air, so any there is will stay closer to the ground. Evergreens, freshly cut, give subtle seasonal notes. Holly, mistletoe and laurels all work. Eucalyptus will make your home smell like grandad's chest rub. I would have to add the sweet Barbara Cartland fragrance from a bowl of hyacinths too, though really only from a nostalgia point of view. My father always insisting on having a bowl of them ready in time for Christmas. He would force them in a dark cupboard under the stairs, then in the airing cupboard. He usually managed to get them to perform on cue. Bay shouldn't have come as a surprise to me, being one of the more fragrant evergreens, but I've only just realised its seasonal notes the essential oil made from its leaves. I'm talking bay laurel, Laurus nobilis here, is rather like having a little bottle of Christmas around, a few drops on a saucer or an oil burner, or dribbled onto a few dry leaves and twigs in a bowl, will scent the home subtly for several hours. There are some good bay candles around too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and 100 essential recipes for midwinter is available now in hardback, audio, and ebook, and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season and I share some more recipes and wintered stories. Mm-hmm.